0: Ruth chapter 4. Last Sunday, we left Boaz at the threshing floor. If that means nothing to you, then I encourage you to take a few minutes sometime in the next week or so to listen to the message from last week as we explained what that is. But in Ruth chapter 3, Naomi persuaded Ruth to tell Boaz she wanted to get married. And in a rather unusual way, Uh, She did so. In response, Boaz committed to become Ruth's husband. Seems that the swiftness of his response might indicate this wasn't the first moment he had ever thought about her. But there was a complication. See, according to Deuteronomy chapter 25, when a childless wife became a widow, the closest relative of her dead husband was to marry her, and have a child in order to carry on the name of the first husband. Now, this is incredibly different for us, culturally speaking. Last night in my gospel community, we were reading that passage, and there was a set of brothers in the room, and that was an awkward moment. But Ruth's husband has died, and his brother had died too, and so the circle of who was to marry Ruth had become wider. There at the threshing floor, when Ruth expressed a willingness to marry Boaz, Boaz was ready. But Boaz knew that there was a Redeemer who was closer. And so Deuteronomy 25 says that other guy should have opportunity to marry Ruth first. And so despite the fact that Boaz was interested, despite the fact he was willing Despite the fact he was available, he knew if I'm to follow God's command, then this other guy must get the opportunity first. And so Ruth chapter 3 ends with this cliffhanger. Ruth and Boaz want to marry. They're godly people. They've expressed interest. They have good, right reasons. And yet Boaz knew, despite the fact that we might want something different, We always must obey God first. By God's grace, through God's Spirit, we seek to follow God's law. And so he committed to resolve the issue, to see if this other guy would marry her, and if not, he would do so himself. So that's Ruth chapter 3, bringing us to Ruth chapter 4. But before we press on to the next chapter, I thought it helpful for us to take just a moment to consider the level of temptation that that man and that woman may have had on that night. As Ruth lay at Boaz's feet in order to express her interest, as Boaz woke and he found himself with opportunity in the dark of the night, There was an occasion for sin. This man with wealth and power and respect could have taken advantage of this woman. She was dressed up and interested. And as we all know, times can go from innocence and purity to raging sin in but a few seconds. There was the moment, the opportunity for sexual sin, and yet... This man and this woman knew sex outside of marriage is always wrong and always harmful. And so Boaz and Ruth honored God. They didn't move forward with their romantic interest. He didn't move on her, and Ruth didn't need him too. And in that way, they're an encouragement to all of us to honor God with our bodies They faced temptation, and by God's grace, they chose purity. What a beautiful thing. Amen? Maybe this morning you've not made a similar choice as you think about your own past, whether it was last night or 10 years ago. Maybe you faced a moment in which there was opportunity for sin, and you chose sin. If so, friend... The message of the gospel is not you are forever a failure. The message of the gospel is there is grace for you. Brother or sister, if you would this morning, in a way you had not planned when you got up, but if you would turn to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you will find forgiveness. You will find health. You will find wholeness. And this is a church family in which you can not only confess that sin to God and repent, but you can confess it to another brother and sister that you might find ongoing encouragement to continue to walk with Christ. You see, Boaz and Ruth knew a moment of pleasure is not worth dishonoring God. And may we learn this morning by their example and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to live life for him. And so, again, we left Boaz at the threshing floor. But today, in chapter 4, we find Boaz in a new location. Daylight had come. Ruth had gone home. And with excitement and eagerness, he had headed to the place where the official legal business of his day was done. Think of it as a mix between the courthouse and a place of business. I don't know if you've been to Prescott, but in downtown Prescott, there's a beautiful courtyard surrounded by a whole bunch of shops. That is the equivalent of the place that Boaz went. He went to the city gate, a large courtyard, an entrance into Bethlehem, the place where you could meet both the judge, the courthouse, and the in essence, conduct your legal monetary business. We find him there in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This is where he'd ask for Ruth's hand in marriage. Now, you'll notice as you look down at that text, we'll read it in just a moment, that the passage falls neatly into two paragraphs. And interestingly, these two paragraphs contain the tale of two redeemers. There's two redeemers in these two paragraphs, but there's only one woman to marry. Which one will it be? Well, in the first paragraph, we'll read about an unnamed man. He's the first redeemer. And in the second paragraph, we'll read about a named man, Boaz. He's the second redeemer. Who will become Ruth's husband? And... Will the providence of God be foiled? Or will the plan of God prevail? And what difference does that make for us? Well, this is what brings us to Ruth chapter 4. We'll read first about the unnamed Redeemer. Uh, Monica, who is a new church member, is going to come read for us the first six verses, Ruth 4, 1 through 6.
1: Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it.
0: Thank you, Monica. All right, there's some weird stuff here. But notice in verse 1, we read of Boaz going to the gate to try to find the guy who he knew was a closer relative, who he knew was the Redeemer who ought to redeem Ruth. You'll notice if you look closely, there's that little word, behold. Perhaps that rings a bell. This word has come up before in the book. This gets us to a recurring theme throughout This wonderful little book. Think back to chapter 2. It seemed lucky that Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. It just so happened. Her chance chanced, the text says. And then in chapter 3, in a similar way, it just so happened that Boaz agreed that he would redeem Ruth. Uses that same word, behold. The idea here, if you sat in one setting and read through the book, it would be obvious that the author is telling us, all along the way, in this story full of tragedy and odd turns, there are instances that seem like random chance events, and yet God, behind the scenes, is providentially weaving together the story of these people's lives. And so here in chapter 4, it happens again. Boaz goes to the gate. Maybe in this whole sea of people who would start their day there, he could find the Redeemer. And he does. Behold, the other guy. The book of Ruth is full of what seem like random chance events, but it is in fact not random, and there is no chance. It is God at work. In other words, we should consider closely in verse 1 is the word friend. Perhaps the irony of this is missed on you, but imagine going to a, a family reunion and you see your grandma and you yell, hey friend! That would be weird, right? This is a relative of Boaz and yet when he sees the other guy, he yells what's translated in English to us as friend. This would be like seeing your uncle and saying, hey you, come sit down over here. Maybe you do that with your family, but that's a little sketch. In the Hebrew text, the issue is far more obvious. This document was originally written in Hebrew, and the word that's translated friend isn't really a word. It's a rhyming gibberish phrase that doesn't mean anything there is no equivalent to it in English the closest thing we could get to is Mr. So-and-so and so so we are given a hint here about the kind of man this guy would turn out to be Boaz as he sees him says hey Mr. So-and-so would you come over here and sit down with me Boaz and Mr. So-and-so sat down, and in a way that the text works very hard to specifically tell us what happened, they gather around a quorum of elders, which means this is an official, legally binding conversation. This is the equivalent of facing the bench, facing a judge, attorneys on either side, in order to resolve an official legal matter. Boaz explains the situation. He says, in essence, there's a new MLS listing. And on that listing is Naomi's land that belonged to her husband. And guess what? You're up. Mr. So-and-so, you are the one that ought to redeem this land and keep it in the family. According to very clear passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, The closest family member should take this responsibility. And so Boaz, despite his interest in Ruth, despite his desire to become her husband, says, Mr. So-and-so, this land is yours. Do you want it? Because you ought to obey God's law. And so in verse 4, you'll look, you'll find the unnamed redeemer says, I will redeem it. Seems like he didn't even stop to think. He knew in that moment, yes, I'll do it. So many of us in the room know the rest of the story, but would you pretend for a moment that you don't? And would you imagine what Boaz must have felt? Because he knows what that man doesn't know. If you redeem that land, then you also must take the responsibility to become the husband of Ruth. Maybe you're a guy in the room who lost the gal you wanted to some other guy. First, I'd say nanny, nanny, boo-boo because that didn't happen to me. But in a larger way, friend, consider what providentially was hanging in the balance in this moment. See, God's plan had been to bring about a Redeemer through Boaz and Ruth, to bring about one who would sit on a throne. His name would be King David. And eventually, through King David, to bring about King Jesus. But in this moment, all of that is in peril because Mr. So-and-so says, I'll do it. The application for us, of course, is when we make decisions, does the sovereignty of God sit in question? But the unnamed Redeemer doesn't know all of this. All he knows is there's a piece of land and I want the land. But then, down in verse 5, the fine print comes into view. Boaz says, if you redeem the land, then you'll also need to take responsibility to redeem Ruth, the Moabite connected to the land. And so what will he decide? If this were a movie the Music would be very tense. You would be on the edge of your seat, not chomping on popcorn. This is the explosive moment in the entire book. Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is within seconds, a 180-degree complete turn in the presence of everybody else in the room. Mr. So-and-so says, uh, 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 uh I can't do that. I-, I wanted the land, but not I don't want the wife. Well, the question here becomes, of course, why would Mr. So-and-so change his mind? Verse 8 tells us clearly that this was a financial reason. It's not a good investment. In fact, I could in in reality be taking on loss. Now, that might need a bit of explanation. Honestly, it wasn't clear to me the first time I read the passage what was going on. But here's the issue. You see, if if Mr. So-and-so and Ruth got married, and if they had a son, then that son would still be connected legally back to the first husband. That was the whole purpose of this kind of redemption. And that would mean this second husband would not get the land. It would go with the son belonging to Ruth and the first husband. And that was a risk he was not willing to take. And even more so, if he didn't have a son through some other marriage he may have already had, and he didn't have a second son, then what would happen to his own land? Well, it would also go with that child. And so as he considers all of this, he's faced with an opportunity, an opportunity he's unwilling to take. Maybe this unnamed redeemer also didn't want to be married to a Moabite. Despite Ruth's commitment to God and to God's people, maybe he didn't want that kind of interconnectivity in his own family. We're not told. But this unnamed redeemer recants. He won't take the land and he won't take Ruth. He's motivated not by what's good for her, but by his own self-interest. And so at the end of this first paragraph, it turns out this Redeemer is not a Redeemer at all. He's the anti-Redeemer. He only fulfills God's instructions when they seem profitable to him. This first Redeemer, it turns out, was motivated not by what was good for Ruth, but what was good for him. This first Redeemer is motivated by self-interest, not self-sacrifice. He's driven by gain, not by giving. This is explosively clear in verse 6. Look at how many times he mentions himself. I, myself, I, my, my, I. This is a man all wrapped up with himself. Parents, this is your toddler, unaware of anybody else but me. Most of the world lives with self as the most basic and driving motivation in all of life. Most of the world lives like that first Redeemer. And in fact, apart from God's grace changing us, all of us are by nature like that. We are all people devoted to ourselves. Our major question is, what's in it for me? I think this is true, especially in relationship to our time and our wallets. I could speak really directly to just the Christians in the room for a moment. Friend, if you want to see the clearest barometer of your spiritual health, look at how you've used your time and your money of late? Have these two great commodities entrusted to you been given for the good of others, for the glory of God, for the spread of His name and His kingdom? Or have they been hoarded for self? That'll tell you where you're at with God. That'll reveal to you something of your basic orientation towards the things of the Lord. Now, one question we all need to ask is, what's the cost of living for yourself? This first Redeemer didn't ask that. He didn't ask, what does this cost me to live for myself? He only asked, what would it cost me if I tried to be helpful to Ruth? And it was a cost he was unwilling to bear. Now, file that question away, would you? What does it cost to live for yourself? And we'll come back to it. But for now, let's go on. We'll transition to this second paragraph. And in so doing, we transition not only to a second paragraph, but a second Redeemer. And in so doing, we'll find a completely different perspective on life, on God, on the Scripture, on people. Verse 7 Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. Aren't you glad we sign things today, not swap shoes? But verse 8, so the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilon and Melion. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Melon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead of his, his inheritance. Why? That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his relative of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Hooray! The providence of God is not foiled by anyone. What God wants is what God happens. You can always trust, friend, that whatever takes place, God is working behind to accomplish his good providence. This unnamed redeemer, in a weird way, legally gave up his rights. Imagine Boaz's excitement as that disgusting sandal was handed to him. As the first redeemer turned his back on Ruth, the second redeemer does the exact opposite. This redeemer is motivated by self-sacrifice. He's driven by God's word and the good of Ruth. And notice that all the same risks posed to the first redeemer are to him, and yet he embraces them. Losing money was inconsequential to him. For him, life was not about gain. Life was about giving. Life was about worshiping God and pouring yourself out for the glory of God and the good of people. For this second redeemer, he's willing to incur risk and embrace cost. He's a giver, not a hoarder. The second redeemer is everything the first is not. If I could put it really clearly that this redeemer gives of himself in order to serve people with real needs. And he does so gladly. He does so with joy. He does so unaware of what the outcome will be, but willing to follow God's law irrespective of the cause. If you're familiar with the Bible, perhaps light bulbs are going off about future people. You see, there's one who would come long after Boaz. Who would say things like, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Who would say things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Boaz would do. He redeemed. He bought the field. He married Boaz He married Ruth, and he obeyed God's law with joy. And so we're back at our question from earlier. What's the cost of living for yourself? If you choose the path of the first Redeemer, what will become of you? What's the cost of living for yourself instead of the joy-filled self-sacrifice of obedience to God's word for God's glory and for people's good? Well, one way to get at the answer to that is to look at the blessing given to Boaz. It's to look at what everybody else who saw this event said. And that's what we find in verses 11 through 13. Then all... People who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. There is no word in Hebrew for yes. And so they are saying, yes, we see it. We embrace this legal commitment. Witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and may you be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Everyone watching, As the unnamed man took his sandal and handed it to Boaz. As the anti-redeemer gave up what he was supposed to do. And the true redeemer didn't. And they burst into eruption of celebration. They saw God at work in bringing Ruth and Boaz together. And in so doing, they pronounced a blessing. They expressed what they hoped God would do. They indicated what they saw the Lord was doing behind the scenes. And that blessing contains a lot of history that we don't have time to cover today, but let me just summarize it in this way. They prayed that Boaz's godly reputation and influence would grow. They saw this Redeemer as a man worthy of more influence and prominence and significance because he was living not for himself but for the glory of God. And second, they prayed for him to have many descendants. Now that might not sound to you like a scandalous, huge, enormous prayer of blessing, but it was. Because here's what they were saying. In the book of Genesis, we know that Rachel and Leah were the matriarchs of Israel, These were the two women through whom all the 12 tribes of Israel eventually came. These are the women who played the most significant role in Israel's history up to that point. And the other couple mentioned, Perez and Tamar, who in Genesis 38 did what never should be done, Read that later, but not with your children. You'll see that Tamar and Perez committed great sexual sin. And yet, not even that sexual sin could stop the sovereignty of God. Because Tamar had twins from that sin. And one of those twins ended up being the ancestor of the entire clan that Elimelech and Boaz and everybody else living in Bethlehem belong to. And so what are they blessing? What are they saying? They're saying if God could do that in those circumstances, how much more could God do with Boaz and Ruth? It's a beautiful articulation of the grace and power of God to do whatever God wants to do. That's the blessing the crowd offered. So we see these sweet people celebrating this new marriage because they watched as God was bringing good out of tragedy. And as tragedy turned to triumph, it was ultimately because God was going to bring Jesus who would face what seemed like tragedy but would come to ultimate triumph. Boaz is the Christ figure in this text. Boaz is the pre-representation of what would come with an even better redeemer, a perfect redeemer, who would rescue us not from childlessness, but from sinfulness, as we talked about last week. And so the question I keep asking this morning is, what's the cost of living for yourself. Well, friend, first and foremost, it's a dishonoring and disobeying of God. If life is ultimately about living for and honoring and glorifying God, then if we choose the path of selfishness, then we'll miss out on the joy and privilege of obeying God. And yet second, as this story shows us, you'll remain unnamed. You notice Mr. and is never given a name. In his desire to keep his inheritance and make a name for himself, he rendered himself insignificant. He sought to keep his life. And just like Jesus said he would, he lost it. The other guy sought to give up his life. And as is always the case in various ways and certainly to various extents, friend, if you give up your life for Christ, you will, according to his kind sovereignty, find it. God was doing something huge in this circumstance in a way that that unnamed man could never ever have known or anticipated. But in his concern for his stuff, his name, his status, in his unwillingness to take on risk, he missed out on being part of the good grace and sovereignty of God. But by God's grace, Boaz became part of God's redeeming work. And he, 3,000 years later, we're still talking about. He self-sacrificed for the good of others. He followed God's commandment to give himself generously, not knowing what would become of his future. Friends, what a picture that is for us. There is no way you can know what will become of you. There is no way When you're faced with decisions to either choose self or choose self-sacrifice, to choose greed or to choose giving, to choose disobedience or obedience, you cannot know everything that hangs in the balance in that moment. But may Mr. So-and-so serve as a tremendous warning to us. Not to go the way of the unnamed man. Our power to live a Boaz like life is bound up not in our resolve, but in our Redeemer. Our Redeemer, who has saved us, rescued us, sent his Spirit to dwell in us, now gives us the power that we might face every one of these moments and choose not to follow the temptation self, but to follow the way of the Savior. May we do so for God's grace and for God's glory. Because this Redeemer, Jesus Christ, redeemed us. He bought us with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God with our bodies. Let's pray. Father, your redemptive plans and purposes are certain and sure forever. You accomplish all that you want to do. We thank you for this amazing story that will end next week as we consider the specificity of how all of this brought us to Christ. And yet, for today, we think about this tale of two redeemers. I pray, Father, first for people in the room who have not yet trusted Christ, who have not come to the Redeemer, who recognize that they have gone the way of selfishness. We pray today, God, that you would open their eyes, that they might understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and turn from sin and place their confidence completely in Jesus. And I pray for the believers in the room, fellow brothers and sisters, that whether we've gone the way of the unnamed redeemer, the anti-redeemer in choosing selfishness in moments of sexual temptation or in moments when the offering plate passes or in moments when somebody calls and says, hey, I need help with this situation. God, we have so often been given opportunities to respond like Boaz and have not done so. Would you please forgive us? And Lord, as we think about a church this size in this location, God, what could you do in the city of Tempe if we were people who every time we were faced with an opportunity for generosity, we took it who go the way, not of the unnamed Redeemer, but the way of Boaz, because of the best Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God, we pray to use your word through your spirit to compel us today to be generous people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.